Welcome to episode 5 of BachCast. I'm your host, John Hendren, and we've just been listening to the opening movement of Bach's third Brandenburg Concerto, BWV 1048. And as we've discovered in our previous podcast episodes with the Brandenburgs, each one is kind of unique, and this one is a concerto for all strings. And it's not done in a typical way, and I say typical meaning uh, it does not use the normal complement of an orchestra. And typically in this time period, you would have a first violin, a second violin, a viola part, and a basso continuo part, which would uh, include cello and, and usually a keyboard instrument. Um, that four-part structure was not always the case in Baroque works, but it was it was pretty common. And it kind of went forward into the classical era as kind of the, the basis of a string section of an orchestra. And of course, by, by late Beethoven, like Symphony Number no. 9, we added things like drums and we added woodwinds and brass. And we have this more of a modern concept of an orchestra having all these colors in it. So Bach's concerto is different in that it has three violin parts, three viola parts, three cello parts. And you can kind of figure out that he's playing with uh, maybe the number nine there. Um, in addition to the cellos, there's a basso continual part written out, which is... Again, no hard rules here, but typically a harpsichord was used. Some ensembles will use something like a lute, an arch lute, one that goes to lower notes. Again, we've discussed if you had uh, oboes in the in the ensemble, that typically would be common to have a bassoon playing that part. And in some cases, we would have a, uh, an organ play the basso continual part. And so many times which you'll hear in a reading such of as as Brandenburg three, uh, they'll have since cello's are already kind of taken up and there's a lot of doubling of that basso continual line with the cello part, they add a, a violone, uh, which there is some controversy whether it should be a a big instrument that plays at the cello pitch or plays an octave lower. In this case we have all those instruments uh, harpsichord and a violone with Musica Antiqua Cone. This is their um, probably their best known recording. It was ma- it was came out in 1986 on the DG Archive label. Um, if you listen to the last podcast episode three, I believe, on Brandenburg number two, I played an excerpt of Trevor Pinnock in the English concert. And that was sort of the earlier version of the Brandenburg Concertos released on that label. And so just three or four years later, they decided to come out with another one. And Musica Antiqua Colm, if if you have read any of my uh, reviews online of of recordings, is probably one of my all-time favorite ensembles. And they no longer exist. Uh, They disbanded in 2007 near the end. Uh, I was fortunate enough to hear their last one of their last concerts as they went on a U.S. tour, and I flew out to Los Angeles and heard them. Um, however, missing from the ensemble was their leader, uh, Reinhard Goebel, who in this recording is uh, playing on first violin. 
And one of the extraordinary things about this recording is it's, despite all the other recordings that have come out since this time, it really still kind of sparkles. It has a lot of energy. Uh, the playing is technically flawless. Uh, it's just so well done, and it's it's difficult for others to compete. And I think they probably do one of the, the best jobs in this particular concerto. Um, I have to admit that that since I've owned this 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 reading of concerto number three has always been one of my favorites. The opening movement in Brandenburg number three is a fast movement. It's the the tempo is not marked, but we assume that it's it, it's a fast tempo, so we might call it an allegro. Um, and what what you have is this structure that's not uncommon, and they call this the concerto re piano uh, structure in concerto writing, where you have a theme that appears, and then you have these episodes. In typically in a, in a solo concerto, where um, uh, the soloist kind of emerges out of the texture and does their own thing for a while, and then it comes back to a theme that you're kind of familiar with. And that, that theme can change keys. It can, they can do different things with it, the composer. But in this case, there's not one clear soloist. And what you see, if you if you look at the score, and if, if any of the things of Bach that's kind of fun to, to follow along with is this particular concerto, because you can see what he's kind of doing. He does a lot of this stuff where, where um, the interest will kind of go down the orchestra. And let's see if we can find an example of that here from movement one. Again, this is Brandenburg and show number three, first movement, performed by Musica Antiqua Köln. So it's really kind of hard or difficult to hear if you're not following the score, but kind of the the lines of interest or the, the stuff that our ear hears on top is being passed around with different instruments. Of course, he can pass it along in the violins, he can pass it along from the violins to the violas, he can pass it to the cellos, and the basso continuo kind of keeps keeps time, it keeps things moving. It's responsible for uh, filling out the harmony. And so what he has here is this kind of interesting type of writing that wasn't at all typical. Um, you could pit these three, or if you want to count the basso continuum, as four groups together. But then within each group, he can kind of separate things out. Now, this concerto sometimes is performed with a larger ensemble. And so, despite the fact that there are three violin parts written out, some ensembles will put multiple players. For instance, if you had three violins per part, you'd have uh, nine violins, you'd have nine violas, and you might have nine cellos. And you'll kind of fill that texture out. And typically, 
a modern performance will do this uh, on modern instruments and typically the, the, the tempo won't be this fast because it's more difficult to keep everything tight and together when you have all these players playing the same thing. So one of the things that the um, historically informed performance practice has done for us is to examine uh, our notions of what of how we perform music in kind of a, a normal way that we're used to with multiple players per part in an orchestra to this concept of doing one person per part. And there's a, a pretty strong consensus among um, the historically informed orchestras today that they all will play this particular piece with one voice per part. So you have a single first violinist, a single second violinist, and a single third violinist, so on, so on, so so forth. And this this allows the ensembles to um, have a much more transparent sound. It allows them to be a little more freer to do things like improvisation, and it also gives them the ability to kind of push the tempo a little bit. When this recording came out, it was criticized for being way too fast, and the first movement for me feels comfortable, um, as does their reading for me of Brandenburgage number six. Of all the recordings out there, I think they get the tempo right in the first movement of six, which is to mean they they almost double the tempo of some other folks. And to me, to my ear, it feels more natural that way. Although I know it must add some technical complexity to the to the performing. Um, in this case, what happens next? You have this opening movement. It's in a major key, G major. Um, it's kind of a nice, fresh. I hate to say happy, but it's it's kind of a uh, gives you a positive outlook. And then what do they do for a second movement? And this is a matter of some controversy um, because all Bach puts in the score. He basically at the end of the first movement writes adagio which is a, a tempo indication to mean play slow. And there's just a couple chords there. A couple chords. And then he presents the last movement, a fast movement. And before we get to the fast movement, I want to talk about those chords because uh, Reinhard Goebel, the, the director of Musica Antigua Colm, has written, um, I don't remember if this came out in an article because I'm confusing my memory of reading some of the things that he's written in early music magazine when I was in college or in the, the notes of the recording, but he basically advocates for us just playing the two chords. That's it. He says no evidence, there's, no th there's nothing in the text to suggest that we should do something else. And there are some ideas about the meaning behind this music and whether there is a programmatic context behind it. And I actually took uh, this concerto as um, a point of study for myself. When I was getting my graduate degree in uh, music and music education, um, I took a class on uh, Baroque musicology and decided to do my final paper on a connection between this particular concerto and, the co and something called Musica Poetica, which was a uh, kind of a musical theory that was popular at the time. And this, this kind of concept of music of the spheres, um, 
this concept came out before folks like Bach were active. But it it centered around a belief that um, the movement of the heavenly bodies in space were somehow under the control of God and the mechanism by which um, things moved in the sky was dictated by a number of proportions. And so you had theorists who were basically looking out how you could divide a string, for instance. If you divide a string in the center of it, you place an octave higher, and as you divide it up, you know, it gets higher and higher. Basically the theory behind how you play an instrument like the violin. And they they had some really wild theories because they, they had certain measurements they could make using things like telescopes that had come out and they were making inferences that, well, if this is kind of our measurements. This planet seems to be so far away. So they were making um, theories to kind of fit the fuzzy math. And they had this idea that um, there was this concept of harmony of the spheres, that if you were actually to go into space and the movement of all the, the planets and the stars, they'd actually make some kind of beautiful cosmic music. And you had to think of Bach's kind of background as a uh, as a quasi-theologian. He was deeply religious, and that's not to say that a lot of people during his time were not, but he definitely was interested in uh, the writings of Luther. He was, um, his job as a uh, Kapellmeister, uh, writing religious music, you know, he, he, he wrote, he told us, uh, through the ages that this was important to him, that he had this desire to write music for the glory of God. And so it's difficult to separate those deep beliefs from a design that you might put together for a piece that on the surface has no religious connotation. There's no indication this is ever performed in a place like a church. Um, it does not have any kind of titles or anything associating with, with Jesus or the New Testament or any kind of scripture, but there has been a lot of study, um, and particularly in Baroque works, and in particular with, with some of Bach, of numerology, this idea that you uh, would add significance to the, the formal structure of things by using different numbers. We know Bach was into this. We know that if you took the, the letters of his name and ascribed where the position of those letters were in the alphabet, they add up to a 14. And so 14 is kind of a, a Bach number. Uh, we know he, um, when he posed for his portrait to become part of the Mitzler Society, um, you know, the number of buttons in his coat was significant. Things like that. He wanted to be a certain number. I forget what the number is, but he wanted to be the nth number uh, of person inducted into the society. And so he weighed to hit this, the, the right number. And we can think of that today as having a lucky number or when you go play the lottery, if you play your lucky numbers. Uh, these concepts were, were definitely of interest to people like Bach. People who I would say were intellectual but not to the extreme degree. Uh, it probably gave an air of intellectualism to what they were thinking about and putting together because they knew that there was some kind of um, complex mathematical underworkings between that that would explain how the world worked. And we were we were too short-sighted at that time to really had figured it out. 
But that really was an impetus for, for science at the time, the Enlightenment, to understand our world and to uncover its secrets. And so there has been some study, for instance, in counting all the notes in Brandenburg Venture number three, or the significance of the Trinity and having three groups of three and things like that. So um, I'll try to find some, some show notes so you can further that study. I don't think it's really important for understanding um, what makes a good performance. And one of the things I've always loved about Musica Antigua Colon and their, and their performing is, number one, they've, they've typically had really transparent sound in the recordings. They did suffer some, I think, in the, beyond this point in the, in the 90s with some of the recordings in terms of sound quality. But um, having heard the ensemble perform once under Gerbel, uh, they, they are a very uh, quasi-athletic ensemble, technically brilliant, and they've left us a legacy of really the highest quality recordings I can think of. That's not to say that somebody won't make a recording that's even more um, palatable to us in the future of these works. But you have to understand that the, the at least some of the performers, I know the director involved, was very concerned about um, kind of discovering the music of Bach, discovering the sound world of Bach, and their choice here to leave the, that middle movement unadulterated speaks to their commitment to the text. Um, I'm going to play the end of the first movement. We'll hear the two chords, and then we'll go into the third movement, which is, of course, a, a huge favorite of mine, which has a little bit of a, a kick to it. Uh, it's amazing. I will, I will preface it by saying that third movement is absolutely amazing because of how fast they've played it. There have been ensembles since that have tried to match that speed. Uh, I know at least of one recording where they have matched the speed, but the technical brilliance uh, is not matched by these guys. So we're going to hear the end of the first movement, the very, very short second movement, if you want to even call it that, those two chords, and then we'll go into movement number three. So this ensemble made some history there. Um, just like La Stravaganza Hamburg had some criticism of the, the, the speed that they chose in some of their uh, recordings of the Brandenburgs, this one that came before it also had, it had its critics. 
but there's a couple things I want you to think about. Number one, they play it well. Um, this is not beyond their technical means. That You'll hear recordings, uh, but more often you'll hear it in live performance where uh, an ensemble or a performer has gotten themselves in a little bit of trouble. They've, they've, uh, they get to rushing the music and it just gets out of control and things don't quite work out. And these guys... Who knows how many takes they took to get this, but it's it's just technically incredible. Um, you really have to compare some other recordings um, to really appreciate the, the speed of all those notes. And what's very clear in this recording is that first violin part played by Reinhard Goebel. He's the leader of the ensemble. Um, and his part really kind of jumps out from time to time and it gives you the sense that he's he's really uh, pushing this ensemble to this um, great effect. And why go fast? You know, th there's some argument that that this concerto can be enjoyable. It can sound great without that rush of speed. But when you hear it and you kind of close your eyes, you're listening to the harmonic pulse, and your 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 toe is tapping there with all those sixteenth notes going by. Um, it kind of works. And it's not to say that you couldn't play it slower, but these guys chose to do it this way. They had their, their rationale for doing it, and musically I think it works. And that's why I think it's one of the, uh, the great recordings of the Brandenburg set by Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, incidentally, this, this kind of cascading feeling again, I don't know, for me it, it kind of evokes this idea of, of big gears moving in the sky. That you think of all the... Uh, if you think of the vibe, all the movement that happens in a in a, a Swiss watch, you know, with all those gears and and things oscillating and things moving and things keeping time, um, it's not difficult. I think with all those notes going by, to th for us to think of something moving, um, which just makes it a really cool piece of music. It's unusual, as I've said. All of Bach's Brandenburg concertos are kind of unique. He definitely was not writing different versions of the same form. The fact that he's writing concertos and he's choosing different kind of instrument instrument groupings and the way to organize things really speaks to what Bach was trying to do. Um, as I mentioned in the earlier podcast, this was kind of a, a job um, portfolio or a, a resume for him to be noticed at another, another court. Um, he had had experience working for um, in a court situation before he got this big job in Leipzig and in the 1720s we believe he um, put these together and and sent them off as far as we know he never heard anything from them so um, you can think of it that way you can also think okay Bach heard that you could apply for jobs or they were looking for examples of of composed works and he very quickly had to put some stuff together and not having been put in the position to have to write concerted music like this he pulled from various things he wrote he kind of stuck some things together and quickly put together a collection of concertos we really don't know. It could have been that latter idea that these are just very quickly composed and put together. And the reason why there was not a middle movement was because he didn't have time to put one together. He didn't He didn't have time. He didn't have something he could just insert. Um, 
you know, Gerbil will tell you probably, well, there's some significance in just having two chords. There's this, you know, um, maybe it's the alpha and the omega or something like that from a religious standpoint. We don't know. Um, the reason I point that out as being significant is some ensembles will actually substitute a different movement to give this concerto um, uh, a real middle movement. Of course, there's not a lot of things written out there for three violins, three violas, and three cellos with basso continuo to choose from. And so what some folks will do is they'll, and this is what Pinnock and the English Concert did in their recording is they played the two chords, but they they gave kind of a, a little bit of a solo to one of the instruments. In, in the case of the English Concert, uh, Simon Standage plays something on the violin. In some other readings, you'll hear the harpsichord does something. Basically just kind of improvising on these two chords. I don't have a, a real problem with that, except that there's no real clear soloist in this, and so who should it be? You could argue that the first violin carries a lot in this in this concerto, which, which they do, um, and you can also wager that you know the, the basso continuo part, the harpsichordist, who could be the director of the ensemble, has a lot to say in this uh, concerto, and so a solo should go to them. Um, but we're still kind of clueless. We, we don't know what Bach would have liked. And those unanswered questions are kind of interesting in the context of what you hear. And um, it doesn't mean it changes your enjoyment a whole lot, but I think it, it does pull you in a little bit with a story of, of what's going on. The last thing I'll mention about this this last movement is it's written in a um, binary format, um, meaning that there's a part that starts, you hit a repeat sign in the music, you go back to the beginning, you play it again, and you play the second part, and then you repeat that. And in theory, you're supposed to do that once each, and that's fine. And so you hear the first part twice, you hear the second part twice, and then the whole thing's done. You could keep going and going and going if you wanted to, I guess, but um, there was music of this of this from this period where you'd have a bass line that would repeat, and you could kind of insert variations on top of variations. That was a very popular thing. Uh, you'll also look at Bach's um, dance music that he's written, basically things like um, uh, keyboard works, like the partitas or uh, the French or English suites. And typically those dances are always in a binary format. So it's just kind of interesting in, in terms of a concerto that Bach has taken this binary construction to a concerted piece of music for an orchestra, which kind of evokes a French style because in French overtures you have a part that repeats. Um, and it just speaks to all the ideas that Bach had. He wasn't writing things in just one way. We're going to close out with, with the ending of Brandenburger's number, concerto number three. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this particular version. I know it's a favorite of mine. And if you don't have it, it's still available. And I'll put the link in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening. My name is John Hendren.